0: This is Fresh Shed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we explore the interconnections between the fields of peace education and human rights education. With me are Maria Hanzopoulos and Monisha Bajaj, authors of the new book, Education for Peace and Human Rights, An Introduction. Their book launches a new book series by Bloomsbury Academic on Peace and Human Rights Education, which brings together cutting-edge scholarship from scholars and practitioners in the field. It will provide a cross-section of scholarly research, as well as conceptual perspectives on the challenges and possibilities of implementing both peace and human rights education in diverse global sites. Check out the show notes for an exclusive 30% discount code. Maria Hanzopoulos is an Associate Professor of Education at Vassar College, and Monisha Bajaj is Professor of International and Multicultural Education at the University of San Francisco. Maria Hanzopoulos and Monisha Bajaj, welcome to Fresh Ed.
1: Thanks for having us, Well, Very happy to be here. Thank you.
0: So can you tell me, to start, kind of a broad question, what is peace education?
1: Yes, peace education, that is a very broad question, but in general, it's a wide-ranging field of practice and scholarship that is viewed both as a vehicle to dismantle violence in its various forms. So this includes direct violence, structural violence, cultural violence, um, but also to build the conditions for a just and sustainable peace. It's a means to teach about peace and for peace. So in that sense, peace education requires attention to transforming content, pedagogy, structures, educational practices, relationships between and among educators and learners, and also the systems by which we measure the outcomes of education as well. Um, But considering its range and its origins across the globe, peace education is also understandably rife with plural and multiple interpretations and enactments. But that's kind of a general understanding of what peace education is.
0: What is the history? Like, when did it, uh, you know, start?
1: Well, the history of peace education is long and varied. Um, As a field, I would say in the early 19th century, it really started to be legitimized. um, But it really gained popularity in the 20th century, particularly in relation to World Wars and the Cold War. To be clear, though, peace education isn't new um, or even just, you know, nor is it Western. I think, you know, that's something we get into in the book a little bit. Many non-Western and indigenous societies across the globe have been grounded in religious and spiritual teachings and traditions that have sought to educate and lead people to more peace, peaceful and just worlds know, since the beginning of time. We would say that the development of peace education in the 20th century is really when it has flourished. Um, And though it takes multiple forms and trajectories, and that is contingent upon specific geographical and historical contexts, we discuss sort of three main periods in the book that push the development of the field forward. And this is the interwar period between World War I and World War II, the decolonial movements emanating from the global south, and among marginalized populations in the global north, and then of course the Cold War after that. Um, those are sort of the three main chapters. Um, in in a particular, it was peace research that pushed the field forward. Particularly, these notions of conceptualizing different types of peace, which I mentioned, um, I mentioned different types of violence, but there were also different types of peace. So initially, peace research focused on direct violence, which is both personal and direct. I don't know how else to say it, right? But this defines peace as the absence of war and violence. Um, And so this type of peace that corresponds with that is negative peace. And that's explicitly concerned with security, stopping violence from happening and just, you know, putting an end to it. Peace research, however, began to consider the root and structural causes of violence. And this led to more nuanced understandings of violence beyond the obvious direct and physical to really consider how a genuinely peaceful world might be realized. So by centering these systemic and structural forms of violence, peace researchers introduced the concept of what's known as positive peace, one that relies on not only the absence of direct violence, that is important, but also the pursuit of justice, human rights, and societal well-being. That was really important in the development of the field. And then finally, I would say in the 70s and 80s, The feminist scholarship really contributed greatly to pushing the field further. Um, In particular, scholars like Brigitte Brock Utney, Betty Reardon argued that peace, both not positive and negative, could only be attained by employing a gendered lens that aimed to dismantle patriarchy. They felt this was really, really important in helping re-socialize people away from militaristic ideals, um, away from war, away from competition. Um, to build a more trusting, collaborative, peaceful, and just future. At present, I would say peace education is not limited to this analysis. These are all really important. But in recent years, there's been a rise in critical approaches to peace education as well. This includes critical peace education, you might have heard that term, as well as decolonial approaches to peace education. Um, Both of these kind of bring in theory from a variety of disciplinary frameworks, as well as highlight marginalized voices and histories to inform peace education theory and practice.
0: That's an excellent overview. I mean, it's such a rich field and obviously has a long history. And what's interesting in your book is that you, you pair this sort of discussion of peace education with human rights education. So Manisha, what is human rights education? I know we've You've been on the show before and we've talked a lot about human rights education, but, you know, what's a brief overview of that field?
2: Sure. Well, I think it parallels peace education's rise in some ways, but then it also has its distinct features. So similar to what Maria mentioned is that you have these antecedents in earlier times where people have sought to um, expand the rights of some to become the rights of more, the rights of many um, visions for the rights of all you have in the, you know, in the 1700s, you have the French Revolution, you have the Haitian Revolution, um, you have the abolitionist movement. The first mention I think we can find in the U.S. of a substantive sort of framing of human rights was Frederick Douglass, the famed abolitionist and later diplomat, um, escaped slave. Uh, who talked about human rights in terms of the abolitionist movement and expanding um, rights beyond the limited narrow conception of rights of white propertied men um, to include more people. So you have antecedents, but the modern human rights education movement really comes out of the, the two world wars in the 1900s and the move towards a desire for a more sort of global community and global set of moral imaginaries that framed the the development of the United Nations and at that time the former president of Panama came to the 1945 signing of the UN Charter in San Francisco with a draft declaration of of human rights uh, the the UN at that time uh the countries that belonged to it which was a limited scope given the the you know presence of colonialism throughout a lot of the world. Uh, They weren't ready to sign on to that just yet. They formed a Human Rights um, Council to start thinking about developing it. And in 1948, you have the adoption by the General Assembly of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And in the, the debates and discussions over every word, every comma, every concept that went into that historic document, you had questions about the right to education, which came into Article 26 um, being required and, and mandatory for all, a right for all, but you also had questions about what that education should look like. So this particularly was a debate among folks coming out of the of World War II, the Holocaust, um, fascism in Europe, who were saying, you know, we have an educated populace, but it didn't stop the horrors of World War II because what was happening in schools was feeding indoctrination. And sort of, you know, the reproduction of of fascist ideologies at that time. So, part two of Article 26 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is an important anchor for the field of human rights education, where it says that it's not just a right to education, it's a right to education that leads to the strengthening of respect for human rights and fundamental freedoms. And that's where the field really anchors itself in the modern moment. But, you know, I think as Maria mentioned in terms of decolonization of of a lot of the Global South that ensued afterwards, getting access to education really took precedence. And it was really not until sort of the 1980s, uh, the end of the Cold War, the Vienna um, Conference on Human Rights that happened in 1993, that human rights education really started gaining momentum as a priority for it's not just the legal forms of rights that that matter. People need to know about their rights in order to be able to claim them and demand them. And so the modern field kind of that's a a little bit of a trajectory of that. But at a basic definition, human rights education is teaching about rights, but also for the expansion of rights and the expansion of respect for those rights among different populations so that there is this generalized human rights literacy among populations along with basic numeracy and literacy in, in education. And I think what's unique in our book that we talk about is that we don't just focus on, on classrooms. You know, a lot of human rights education has talked about K-12, higher ed. Uh, community-based human rights education is some of the most vibrant human rights education that exists as part of non-governmental organizations, social movements, communities, um, that really seek to take these principles um, into practice, even when they may be excluded uh, outside of formal education. And there's both implicit and explicit human rights education. So explicit human rights education would be a human rights class or a human rights textbook or a human rights subject. And implicit is where the concepts and principles and values and attitudes of human rights are infused into other programs that may not use the, the nomenclature of human rights per se.
1: Yeah, just to add a little bit, not specifically about human rights ed, but I think Monisha pointing out sort of the historical trajectory of human rights ed, you can see that it kind of overlaps with peace education in terms of you know, its development. Obviously, there's there are clear distinctions and we map those out, but there's something about that overlap in terms of why these fields sort of gained prominence um, sort of bind to the fields in some way, um, and similarly, I should add, it's it's the implicit and the explicit nature is um, is a really interesting phenomenon because I think often what gets highlighted both in human rights ed and in peace ed are the more explicit approaches, but there's so much implicit um, peace education and human rights education happening everywhere at all times, and our book really tries with some of the examples, we, we do both. We document sort of the explicit and the implicit approaches in the book with the examples that we use.
0: And before we get into some of those implicit and explicit examples, I'm actually quite interested in, in what you think are some of the distinctive features of the field. Because listening to these quick overviews of each, you do clearly hear the interconnections, right? The historical connections between peace education and human rights education, and perhaps in the sort of more modern conception, how they work through and are supported by institutions of the United Nations. Um, but how are they distinctive in, in your view?
1: I mean, I would say in... And Monisha, you can jump in. Mm-hmm. Um, in In its most in the most critical and transformative forms, the distinctions are actually quite blurred, which I think is a good thing. And I think this is where we were trying to sort of connect in the book. But I will say, in general, peace education is really, um, you know, there's there there is somewhat of a normative perception of what peace is. I guess this is similar in both fields because because rights could be that way too. We sort of push back on that a little bit as well, but. Because peace education is concerned with explicitly these notions of peace and violence, I think that distinguishes it from human rights. Doesn't mean human rights education doesn't take those up. And it also doesn't mean that peace education doesn't take up human rights. Most often they do. But I would say that's probably uh, the main distinction, just these notions of peace and violence. I don't know if you, uh, for peace education...
2: Monisha, do you do you have anything to add? Yeah, I'll just add one thing to what you said is that I think, you know, Maria and I um, edited a, a volume a few years ago, Peace Education International Perspectives, where we brought together different authors from around the globe talking about localized conceptions of peace and peace education. And what's so apparent when you look at kind of these local meanings and localizations of Of peace education, it's really different, right? You have different levels. You have people kind of focusing on inner peace and a more kind of like spiritualized element. You have interpersonal peace. You have kind of collective peace really focused on, um, you know, looking at the historicity of violence and um, and tensions and, and peace knowledges and those kinds of things. So I think peace has a lot of different interpretations globally and human rights do as well. But I think with human rights, you have a more articulated kind of body of international law on human rights that allows for an anchoring in a much sort of vaster framework that, ha- that, you know, legal scholars have been talking about for decades now and have been developing ideas of. And we still, like Maria had mentioned, when you look at the sort of critical decolonial and transformative forms of both of these fields, peace education and human rights education, you have a blurring because there is a kind of similar focus on what we talk about in the book of building solidarity, of um, recognizing the inherent dignity of learners, of fostering transformative agency. But I think with human rights education, because of the sort of um, expansion and articulation of, of a body of rights and what those mean, the way that that gets localized um, has a bit more anchor in some of the work of the U.N. Peace education has been taken up by the U.N., but I think what you find is when you look at different programs, there's a lot more sort of variation on the ground of how people interpret that.
0: It's really quite interesting because they're, they're so deeply interconnected. It's quite hard to actually unravel how they're distinct in a way but I think you did a really nice job of of pointing to some areas. So let's go into how they are really, truly interconnected and particularly in some of the concepts and ideas. And Monisha, you were already raising some like solidarity, but how do you see these two fields as being interconnected?
2: Sure. So we see several intersections between the fields and really we feel like the main intervention that this book is trying to make is positing what the fertile terrain is at the intersection of these two fields. Um, and how we might think of them as one sort of shared field. And we use an, an heuristic in the book of um, a tree with intertwined roots. And so we see the joint field of peace and human rights education as a tree with intertwined roots that are nourished by concepts such as dignity, transformative agency, justice, solidarity, um, empathy, equity, anti-racist work, decolonial work. And we definitely are, are situating the decolonial transformative strands of these two fields as really joint and sharing um, a focus on contextually relevant curricula, pedagogy, recognition of learners' inherent dignity. And this is really important when we talk about in the book too how so many marginalized communities have been made to feel less than human and in, in internalized a lot of those beliefs. I see that a lot in my work, my long-term work in India, I looked at Dalit and Adivasi communities, Dalit being formally called untouchable quote unquote, Adivasi indigenous communities who often feel like they're not even worthy of rights because of histories of domination and um, extreme forms of brutality that have made people feel less than human so that when treatment that is less than human comes at their way, it's hard to interrupt those forms. And some of the localized forms of really radical human rights education that have happened have had to engage in this way of really thinking about dignity um, for marginalized communities in ways that that can even get you to the point where you want to demand your rights because of these processes of of dispossession and marginalization that have been so terrible. Um, we see sort of both the critical and decolonial forms of both human rights education and peace education in this kind of joint way that we're conceptualizing them, having deep analyses of social inequalities, Um, A joint focus on fostering critical consciousness, as Paulo Freire has talked about, a cultivation of transformative agency that we we develop in Chapter five of the book. Kind of a a notion of how transformative agency that comes out of educational scholarship can really have different components that make it um, sustainable and um, uh, coalitional, relational, really building on the ways that agency can be consistent over time.
1: Maria, did you want to add anything? Uh, I think Bonisha really summed it up. I mean, really well. Um, but it, 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 you know, as we talk about in the book, we really take the we take dignity and agency as sort of the two anchors. But also how Frary does unite <laughs> these anchors in some way. So I think that's really, really important. Um, and she started to speak to that. So. I think for us, you know, just to sort of jump in, there's no doubt that the work and pedagogy of Paulo Freire, which is rooted in critical consciousness, dialogical relationships and practice, transformative agency, problem posing, that this is often a vehicle for the enactment of both peace education and human rights education. Um, a vehicle meaning it's, you know, it's a type of pedagogy, right? But this type of critical pedagogy is also grounded in a vision, a vision for a more socially just future, And in many ways, it serves or should serve as the basis for both fields, um, particularly in their critical forms. So Freire, for us, is central.
0: I found that very interesting that both fields placed Paulo Freire as being one of the central sort of historical figures and thinkers. Um, So how did Paulo Freire and how does peace education and human rights education combine those ideas of dignity and agency in a little bit more detail?
1: Well, I'll start a little bit with, and, and Moni can maybe pick it up, but I'll start a little bit first just with Freire, just unpacking a little bit more, you know, the tenets of Freirean pedagogy, you know, the first of which, and I think this is really important to articulate here, is that, you know, Freire believed that hierarchical student-teacher relationships mirrored the relationships of the oppressed and the impressor. So really central to his pedagogy was equalizing both parties' role in the co-construction of knowledge. And he also pushed, you know, the idea that, That knowledge is never neutral. Right. And so Freire not only believed that students and teachers could work towards each other's liberation by acknowledging these things, but also move towards a more just and equitable society grounded in collective freedom. Right. Um, And central to this was problem posing, which is in which the learner critically reflects on the world and the world around them and then takes critical action to transform it. Uh, Freire's explicit commitment to dismantling structural violence really dovetails with the same goals of peace and human rights education. And moreover, Freire and critical pedagogy really hones in, and Monisha spoke to this a little bit, on the context-specific structural inequities to illuminate how localized experiences shape perceptions of peace and human rights. So by magnifying this role, you both center dignity and transformative agency. So I'll speak a little bit about dignity, right? Um, You know, human dignity in many ways is the underlying and generative principle that defines the enactment and purposes of peace and human rights education. I think Monisha spoke to that with some real concrete examples earlier. And more specifically, the critical and transformative approaches to peace and human rights education Privilege, agency, experiences, struggles, and the beliefs of the learners, as I spoke to before, this equalizing process that everyone co-constructs knowledge, everyone brings knowledge, that is used to not just transform one's, well, first to transform one's own world, but also kind of contribute to a more just uh, and sustainable and equitable world beyond that as well. But I think what's important in how this connects to dignity is that these approaches valorize learners as agents. It's, it's really hard to separate the two things, right? Dignity and agency, really. Yeah. And so placing primacy on, um, on learners' perceptions or learners' a- agency, you are also placing primacy on human dignity. So while these approaches are generally found in grassroots and collective social movements, We also believe that they can actually happen in schooling contexts as well. I mean, there are some limitations, but that's particularly if there's a more radicalized reconception about the purposes of schooling. So dignity is inherently linked to agency just because um, agency acknowledges the humanity, basically, of the, you know, for lack of a better word, learner, (laughs) participant, actor, however you want to call it however you want to call the person or the group of people that are involved. So is this connected to democracy? In the sense that democracy is ever evolving and changing and um, is always striving for a more inclusive, collective, just world. Yes. I think it depends on how you define democracy. Is it connected to, you know, Representative democracy or parliamentary democracy, maybe in some ways and maybe not. But I think in a real sort of kind of radical sense of democracy as a verb, as always striving and moving towards something more just. Yes, there is a connection, perhaps. Mm
0: -hmm. It's sort of that idea of the democracy where people are sort of in constant conversation, trying to reach consensus, have the agency to share their ideas and their opinions and their beliefs, and working together on, you know, having that agency on um, to do something in the world, whatever that is, and and it's through that collective response. So it is, it's much less about voting, and much more about, as you said, the verb, the participation.
1: Yeah, I think... Participation um, connects this idea of transformative agency, and transformation is important too, right? Um, it's also connected to being um, coalitional, relational. So this is where the intersections are. But in the book, we don't really connect it in that explicit way to democracy. We did not. We don't take that up. I mean, I think it's kind of implicit and implied, but it also democracy is just a really fraught
2: word. I think all of these all of these concepts are fraught on some level, right? Well, I think that's where the book comes in a bit, right? Because we do try to give some, some precision to how we view these concepts coming into these fields to kind of animate the more critical and decolonial directions that these fields have been headed in for some years now and that we sort of lay a research agenda for them to continue to head in. Um, so I, in um, some of the chapters, we do talk about Dewey and his early conceptions of democracy and education, build on those with with theorists like Paolo Freire and, and more recent theorists as well, who are moving us towards the role that education in and outside classrooms can play in fostering this sort of transformative agency that can be individual, that can be collective, but that can lead to social change.
1: But we're also really want to acknowledge localized context. Right. And so that's why I say democracy is a fraught word sometimes, because it is, you um, we're attentive to localized contexts and how agency and dignity kind of frame them. I guess that's probably the best way to to say it. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: I, yeah. I mean, I I think I understand. I mean, it's it's trying to move away from any universalized notion. So, but I want to I want to pick on this idea of the decolonial approaches and the, the decolonial sort of directions that you see these fields. Um, potentially moving in and in the directions that you'd sort of like to see them moving in. Can you unpack, you know, what what are these directions? How do you see decolonialization interconnected with peace education and human rights education?
2: Well, I think, you know, something that we're trying to do in this book and the book series that it launches is really think about um, human rights education and peace education without universalizing and sort of drawing on these like normative conceptions that have been really over time in the fields developed in Western contexts and have been sort of exported or translated and sent around the world to be sort of, you know, because of the diffusion that happens in in Western privileged context where, you know, somebody writes something and, and it can reach all over. So what we try to focus on um, in this book and really, you know, are charting the way ahead for thinking about transformative, critical and decolonial directions for, for the fields is, Really getting away from the universalization and these normative conceptions and really privileging the localization and the local context. So the questions we're asking is not, are not, you know, what are the, what are the universal principles that should be applied everywhere? That's not a question that we are interested in taking up. Instead, we're deliberately focusing in this book on how individuals, organizations and movements make meaning of peace education and human rights education to bridge the gap between rights and realities for marginalized groups. And much of the scholarship that exists that does focus on universal and normative dimensions, um, it has limited information about what is locally meaningful. What does human rights mean in a local context? What does peace mean in a local context? And what is the agency of local actors in using these global concepts for their own strategies for struggles for justice and and gaining attention or gaining legitimacy? Um, Why does a local NGO in a rural community in In Bangladesh, use human rights as a framing for their work with um, women who are, are, have not had access to schooling or have access, may not have access to property rights, et cetera. Why is human rights considered a, a framework that is utilized? And what does it do for that organization in terms of linking to a global conversation that can gain it legitimacy, can gain it funding, can gain it recognition and plugging into a larger framework globally. So those are the kinds of conversations that we we're we're, ha- we're trying to to have in the book and and encourage others to have is to really look at the local and from there look at how it sort of creates a prism for the ideas of peace and human rights education to be refracted in multiple ways rather than looking from the top down saying here's how it's been defined by a scholar in the west and you know let's see if we can apply it everywhere. Those aren't questions that we want to take up and that we think have not done much to advance the field in the years since some of those um, you know, those approaches that have existed earlier have not been that useful to to the advancement of understanding how local actors really, you know, examining local agency and in taking up these these ideas and and refining them and recirculating them from sort of a more bottom-up approach too, you know, if we think about those hierarchies globally.
1: But also just to add to that, um, that point that Monisha just brought up about different collectives and groups, maybe trying to legitimize their causes by attaching themselves to these larger projects, even though they've been doing the work implicitly, you know, there's the flip side of that too, right? I'll take peace education as an example, right? There are, you know, lots of uh, communities working towards building, you know, more just and peaceful, sustainable futures, but really shy away from the word peace because in their particular context, it could actually undermine the work that they're doing. So all of these are kind of important ideas to sort of take up in the work. And we, we think the direction of critical peace ed and decolonial trajectories of peace and human rights
2: education sort of take this up in a way, kind of looking at those nuances, right? I'll add on to what you just said. I think human rights is similar. Right. In some contexts, using the term human rights can result in tremendous government repression by state forces. And there you know, that's where the implicit and sort of subversive forms of human rights education need to be looked at, too. There are some scholars who don't want to pay any attention to anybody who doesn't call what they do. Peace education or human rights education because they don't feel like it's an explicit form. But sometimes the implicit forms are the most radical where people are operating in spaces where they can't use these names because of the the repression or backlash or, or undermining that might happen. You know, there's so many reasons why someone wouldn't wouldn't employ these terms, but it can be a really um, important examination to see what people are doing that are in the spirit of these fields but cannot use those names per se
1: and we think that this points to some of the limitations of what um in thinking about peace and human rights education sort of have been right in general the reliance on normative and totalizing frameworks that monisha talked about earlier you know creates blind spots and uh both peace and human rights, it kind of undermines the projects in some ways when there's a sole reliance on Western-centric normative notions of peace and human rights, when there's a failure to acknowledge the, the really specific sui generis contexts, you know, including the ways in which race and coloniality inform local practices, that's often missing from some of the peace education and human rights education literature. Not always. And I think, I think in our book, we highlight some, and there is growing research with these decolonial trends. There are many scholars taking this up now. Um, But I think it's important to look um, at these contexts to understand um, how violence occurs in those contexts as well. And of course, the dismissal of marginalized voices um, and also the need for a teleological outcome sometimes that doesn't really attend to or benefit, you know, the people that are supposed to be on the quote unquote receiving end of peace and human rights education. So we just think that in both peace and human rights education, this attachment to specific outcomes can sometimes undermine the really amazing work. Um, and so that reflection is also key. So our book in a way is just sort of pushing through some of these limitations, but it doesn't mean it, it's a panacea or solves it or anything too, because that continual reflexivity is so crucial. Like we, can, we need to continue to movement. <laughs> movement is really important. We continue to move forward, reflect, think, reevaluate, assess. And um, both us as scholars, but also that this is what we sort of
2: um, see needs to happen among practitioners um, and agents as well. One of the unique contributions, I think, of our book is also that for the book series that this book launches, the kind of first ever book series on peace and human rights education with Bloomsbury Press, um, is that we have an advisory board of um, thought leaders and scholars from around the world who've been working in peace and human rights education. And in chap in the last chapter of the book, we we interviewed advisory board, editorial board members um, to ask them their perspectives on advice for scholars, um, directions that the field should go in, transformative, critical, decolonial sort of perspectives on the field. And so that's a part of the book that I think is unique: is really this intergenerational um, dialogue. Um, with us, you know, that places these thoughts and ideas and, and, and perspectives in conversation for readers and, you know, whether those are students or, or scholars in the field or practitioners to engage with. And, you know, we really hope that it can be the, a start of a conversation and maybe a place where people can can put their ideas and their research um, plans in in conversation with with folks um, in ways that are meaningful. So I think that that's a unique contribution of the book as well.
0: Well, Maria Hansopoulos and Monisha Bajaj, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed.
2: Thanks so much, Will. Thank you for having us.
0: Maria Hansopoulos is an associate professor at Vassar College, and Monisha Bajaj is a professor at the University of San Francisco. Their new book is Education for Peace and Human Rights, an introduction. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Freshhead are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Freshhead, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. FreshEd's team includes Sherry Yang, Lushi Guaba, Fatih Octus, Yingzheng Cho. Obafemi Ongunle, Diang Jian, Annabella Afro boteng Anya Lin, and Phyllis Che Mensa. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, the Shock Dev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to FreshEd by visiting FreshEdPodcast.com donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.